0: Welcome to episode 39 of the Working Well podcast, the show that explores the rapidly changing landscape of work and well being. Each episode, we dive into the hottest topics in leadership, employee well being, and the future of work. I'm your host, Tim Boris. Today, I'm excited to be hosting the amazing Cyrilda Summers McGee. She's a dynamo of a woman who's redefining what DEI, corporate culture, and leadership look like in the workplace. Today we're going to dive into how these important topics are influencing both employee well-being and organizational performance. Here's a bit more about Cyrilda before we get started. Cyrilda Summers-McGee is a powerful force for positive change, business excellence, and vibrant workplace cultures. Her diverse background and refreshing perspective on people, DEI, and business performance is a true inspiration for leaders and organizations. She's the principal and CEO of Workplace Change LLC. Her full-service HR firm specializes in guiding and advising companies to integrate diversity, equity, and inclusion into their business and HR systems. Prior to launching her own firm, Sreldit was Chief Human Resources Officer for the City of Portland, Oregon, and supported a workforce of over 10,000 team members. In the past five years, she has won numerous awards, including Woman of Influence, HR Excellence, and CEO of the Year. All right. It's really great to have you on the Working Well podcast. So nice to have you here. How's the day I'm going? I'm happy to
1: be you? here, Tim. My day's going well.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Now, we're, we're going to talk about a lot of things today, and I'm really excited. In our previous chat, we, we had a lot of great topics that came up. So <laughs> this one is really about the that intersection between leadership, diversity, equity, inclusion, well-being, and company performance. Now, you have a widely varied background, and you're an, an innovator in the in the DEI space as well as the the leadership and corporate culture space. So, I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing a lot about where you started and how you got to where you are now. You've won lots of great awards. Uh, over the past few years, Women of Influence, and you have the uh, CEO of the Year for 2022. Congrats. Yeah,
1: thank you so much. Thank you. And I'm I'm excited to share with you my perspective on the intersection of the topics you mentioned, because there's a lot of overlap and intersectionality as it pertains to those topics.
0: Yeah. And one thing that stuck out from your your bio, and I'm really excited to hear the evolution of this is you you started working the at the front uh, reception at uh, taco bell or the the counter at taco bell tell me how you go from that to the chro of the city of portland
1: a <laughs> uh, miracle um <laughs> yeah, lots of prayer so i look i grew up pretty um stereotypical for the 80s um, as a black girl in Michigan, right? Like it was tough days. We were, my family worked in factories and foundries and they always told us to, kind of the way to get out of this cycle of poverty and the the cycle of manual labor was education. But in order to attain that education, I had to work right to survive. And so, um, I worked in, fast food, quick service in the summers. I worked in factories and foundries, um, you know, four GM plants. And, uh, but I worked at Taco Bell the longest. Um, Taco Bell taught me, taught me a lot. And it mostly taught me to A, get out, right? Like it reminded me every single day that this can't be your life at 40 years old. I'm 40 today, um, I'm, I was 16 when I started working there. And, uh, and I remember thinking like, I can't do this at 40. Like this is so physical, you know, flipping tacos is physical. You're on your feet for eight to 10 hours straight. You get a couple 30 minute breaks in there. When's the last time you stood in one spot, moving your arms very rapidly for 10 straight hours day after day, right? Like it was just, it was grueling physical labor, but it did teach me work ethic. It did teach me that, um, you know, I needed to stay committed to my education to, to get out of that cycle. And it also taught me how to manage people. Right. Um, you know, I worked at Taco Bell from the time I was 16 until grad school. I went to grad school twice. I got a master's in education and an MBA. I worked at Taco Bell all the way through getting my um education degree, uh, 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 in, at Ball State University. And so that's like, until I was 21 years old, from 16 to 21, I worked at, at taco, taco Bell. I used to call it taco hell affectionately, right? Coming home smelling like taco meat and onions. It was not great, um, but it made me have a passion for education, it made me have a passion for just kind of getting into something that was a bit more white collar. Yeah.
0: And then tell me a bit more about what you learned about leading managing people at that, uh, at that time. How has it translated to where you are now?
1: So so one of my first clients when I started Workplace Change, um, my first big client when I started Workplace Change was Burgerville. Burgerville is a, um, a regional brand It's in Oregon and, and Washington um, and it's locally sourced meats. If you're ever in Oregon, Washington, you got to get a Burgerville meal. It's delicious. Right. It's nutritious. It's all local. And uh, they brought me in because they became the first unionized fast food, quick service, it's not fast food anymore, quick service restaurant in the United States of America. And so um, they reached out to me because I have a really rich background working in human resources and government organizations working with unions. So I went and worked for Burgerville and I had this major aha, right? Most of the people who were at the table, the, the the lawyers, the business owners, et cetera, they hadn't worked in quick service. They didn't understand the experiences of the people. They didn't understand the grievances of the people. They didn't understand how you can, how you can you know, have a very successful business, but how that business is built on the backs of people who are low wage earners, who are committed to you, committed enough to show up every day and, and you know, sacrifice their body and their health being inside the ecosystem. And it was, I was able to communicate like to translate what the quick service employee is experiencing and what the corporate folks needed to hear to understand what was vexing the workforce. Taco Bell taught me that working, you know, direct customer on the lines, right? On the the heated boiling hot water lines, making this food throughout the day. I understood the challenges. I understood the obstacles. I understood how condescending some of the language can can read to people who who are out there on the front lines every single day, and and Taco Bell taught me that. Taco Bell taught me how to to communicate with people in a way that made them not feel disrespectful, but disrespected, but made them feel valued and made them feel seen. Taco Bell taught me that. And those those experiences, those life experiences helped me become a strong leader today because humans are all the same. We try to think about like the poor people versus the rich people versus the middle-class people. We're all just human beings wanting to be respected, responded to, encouraged, celebrated for good work, not talked down to, not humiliated. It's it's human nature. And, and sometimes we forget those things uh, along the way. And so Taco Bell grounded me in that. I'll never forget what Taco Bell gave to me Um, in my time there beyond smelling like onions at my core and not being able to ever eat Taco Bell ever. Uh, It, it gave me this kind of sense of understanding the natural human experience and seeing how how it's all the same, no matter what environment or ecosystem you go in, the human experience is the same and the needs are the same.
0: Yeah, you, you just nailed it in the sense of the, most of the leadership and organizational challenges we see today around people come down to whether it's a lack of empathy or understanding or oh. ability to... Just see that other person as a human. Exactly. Have a conversation with them.
1: Not as a problem, right? When you see a person as a human, you respond to them in a very humane way. When you see a person as a problem, you respond to them in a very aggressive way, right? Like, I'm going to eliminate, dispose of this problem. And that's not humane, generally, by and large. And so even if a person is you know, terrible at their job, right, or you don't like them, Right, or they're rude, or they're whatever, But and you have positional power and authority, you don't have to, to engage with them in a cruel way because you have the power. You can be humane, you can be nice and civilized, still hold them accountable, and still fire them. But you don't have to make them feel like garbage along the way. And that that's Taco Bell, right? Taco Bell taught me this, because here's the thing that I, I worked at the Taco Bell in a very urban environment. We'll, we'll say it that way. So if you disrespect... Respect is the currency in, in, in low-income environments, right? We don't have a lot of money. We don't have a lot of assets, right? We have respect. So if I feel disrespected by you, the way in which I respond to that disrespect is an open hand slap to the face. Like, it can become physical very quickly. And so you have to be very thoughtful unless you want to t- turn a situation into a re a a directive or redirect into a physical assault where family members are coming from the neighborhoods and and it's an all out war literally it can go from zero to 10 like that and so that's where i learned to like okay how do i get you to do what i need you to do not call your posse in here to make my life a living h-e-double hockey sticks right and and get the outcome that we all need you're trying to get paid i'm trying to get paid i don't want any problems you don't want any problems you need to do this job that's taco bell and I've taken those those life experiences with me. Now, we're, we're really sophisticated now, so nobody's going to slap me in the face. So, you know, it, it's a lot less on the line uh, if I don't get it right sometimes.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, and that's a very, um, like, call it physical example, but people get disrespected in the workplace all the time, and yeah, they may not slap you in the face, but that's where a lot of the challenges with corporate culture come from is People, there's this, you know, simmering distrust, uh, dislike, yes. uh, lack of respect that's going on, and everyone's on the surface very polite about it. But work doesn't get done. People are ineffective. Stress levels are high. Yep. What you know, it's, you would have seen a very different picture at City of Portland. So tell me about some of the differences you see and the commonalities in the in the solutions to that.
1: Oh man. Differences in commonalities. and commonalities. So, so, God, I love this question, Tim, because there are so many parallels that people who don't, who don't get to cross over, they don't get to see, right? So I tell you, you disrespect someone, they feel deeply disrespected by you, it can get physical in these low-income environments. That is a physical slap in the face, right? But on the corporate side, folks are slapping each other in the face 24-7, but it's just not physical right it's manifesting in different ways so like you said they'll drag their feet they'll you know on a project that, that you need to get finished they will i call it sniper shooting right they'll they'll spread gossip about you that can wreck your career your quarter million dollar half a million dollar a year career right i'd rather you slap me in the face than you stop my earning potential for the next 20 years you know what i mean and people will will they will they will set you up they will whistleblow they will claim things happened that didn't happen because you are disrespecting them and now they're like i'm going to now disrespect you i'm going to now you know get get you back for the harm that you caused me and it's just deeply you know um dysfunctional and it is it, it doesn't establish you can't run your business as successfully as you could have if that didn't exist so I tell folks, you know, I learned, I learned some, some hard knock rules of life when, when I'm, you know, living in, you know, subsidized housing, working at Taco Bell, catching the bus places, right? Like getting um, supplemental food assistance, you know, just kind of living in that environment. But those, those, those very rich life experiences directly translate into the corporate world hands down, easily, There's an easy nexus like, no, she didn't slap you in the face. No, she whistle blew and gave you a bully that then made you have to spend tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees in order to fight the bully, only to come up that it wasn't, it was mostly just a misunderstanding. Okay, this is a slap in the face. A big slap in the face because this person is chronically disrespected. And we can really interrupt that trend line. It's harder to catch it. It's easy for somebody to yell at you and say, don't talk to me like that. And for you to deescalate it, then for someone to go back, To their desk, to their home office, and cook up a plan of how they're going to get back at you. And there's a whole, there's a lot of that that's happening right now um, in the workplaces throughout America, on the heels of COVID, on the heels of civil unrest, on the heels of, you know, Me Too, Black Lives Matter. All of these things have just brought um, the stressors to a fever pitch. It's at a crescendo right now. And it's going to require a lot of direct communication to get things back on track or else we're just going to keep on litigating and fighting and whistleblowing and calling each other out and going to social media and saying people are racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic. Whoa. Talk about slaps in the face. Right?
0: Yeah. Well, you, you, uh, you hit on it in the sense that I, what I've seen as well, and same up here in Canada is that people's bandwidth for stressors is just razor thin right now. It, you know, pre COVID, Stress levels were high, but I find that buffer zone is just gone. And gone. So the, the littlest thing sets people off and th- you don't know what it could be. But a lot of people are so in their bubble that yes. they don't notice when they have done something disrespectful or when they have when they're not seeing the bigger picture because they're just focused on their own you know, psychological survival, I guess we'll call it.
1: Absolutely. And disrespect has changed, right? What used to be disrespectful two years ago, what used to not be disrespectful two years ago is now seen as deeply disrespectful today. Um, I had, I had someone, uh, can I give you an example? Can I give you an example? Of of
0: course. Of of course. Yeah.
1: So, uh, I had a person on my team. I have a person on my team who uh, on my workplace change changed team. And um, she was new and uh, she started working with us and, and she asked for, you know, some flexibility. And I believe in flexibility. I believe in you getting the job done and we can be flexible within reason. If you can still get this job done, we can, we can be incredibly flexible as long as it's something that I can provide to other people who are making a similar request. So that that's just always my approach But her approach to having the conversation with me was, was one that was clearly based in trauma, right? She came forward and she said, um, I am neurodivergent and, uh, 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 I, I identify as neurodivergent. And so I don't like, I don't want to be in the office before 10 AM and, um, and I need this as an account accommodation. Like she's using all of these HR rich words to be able to kind of like force a leader to bend to their will. And I remember, you know, kind of pausing the conversation and saying, hey, 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 pause, right? Like I could have felt disrespected. I know managers, we work, we are B2B business. I know managers who would be who would feel deeply disrespected that a new hire is now trying to force them into accommodating these, you know, wonky timing things because like they would they would immediately say that's a red flag, let's get them out of there. I feel disrespected by this behavior. I feel like they're trying to trying to force me into a corner to to do what they want me to do and not be able to manage my team fairly the way I need to manage my team and they would get rid of that person. But instead I had a conversation about it. And say, like, why do you feel like you need to come and tell me that you are neurodivergent? Number one, I believe that most of the world is neurodivergent, right? Whether it's anxiety or, you know, um, ADHD or, you know, you've got uh, you. you What is it when you read the words backwards? um, um, Dyslexia. Dyslexia. I mean, we can we can go on and on and on about the different kinds of ways that, that people take in information and how we need to celebrate those different kinds of ways. But I'm like, why are you needing to put these medical terms to it and then say you need an accommodation? Why can not you just have a conversation with me, right? Yes, undiagnosed. You don't, you don't have a doctor's re- request. I'm not asking for one. Like, why are we doing this? I could have seen that as disrespectful. She could have seen me calming the conversation down and saying, like, I'm not going to play that game with you. You want to be able to work in these flexible ways and arrangements? You got it. But don't ever come to me and try to weaponize some self-diagnosis into trying to force me to bend to your will because I, re- I resent that. Two years ago, that is not the way in which people were having these kinds of conversations. Number one, she probably wouldn't have asked. Number two, uh, I probably wouldn't have had the, the direct conversation with her. Number three, she probably wouldn't have used this very kind of loaded, le- you know, legal health language, accommodation, or divergent, you know, all of those kinds of things. The world has shifted so aggressively. And now, because we have all these this new language, these new expectations, these new demands that we're asking people are feeling more and more threatened. People are feeling more and more disrespect that people are feeling more and more like I need to get, get away from, from that stimulus. And, and it's really unfortunate because at the end of the day, we should just have a conversation about it, which is why I use this example of her request and the disrespect and the sensitivities that, that folks are having right now.
0: So how does she respond to the, the, the change in tone, I guess you'd say of the conversation.
1: She was grateful. She said, thank you. Like at the end of the day, she got what she wanted, right? I just let her know what, I, what my value set is and what our cultural dynamics are in workplace change. So if she, pl- if she tries it again, I'm gonna ask, are, do we have parallel value sets? Is this the best environment for you to be in? Because we don't, we don't manipulate people here. We have conversations and we try to figure out how to move forward in a way that respects the business, that respects the, the, uh, the colleagues in the workforce, and that, you know, gets the, the work done and you can have the flexibility that you need. I don't, I doubt that she'll do it again because she felt like she was able to have an adult conversation with me and we were able to be straight up. But, um, you know, I think it's going well so far. But if it's not, trust and believe, I'll have another conversation.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and with your background, that's a conversation that you've probably had multiple times in multiple ways. What <laughs> yes. what What advice do you have for leaders that maybe our new leaders are aren't used to having those types of conversations.
1: Yeah. You know, you you talk about the 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 nexus of employee well-being, corporate performance, leadership, diversity, equity and inclusion. The nexus of all of that is healthy communication, right? And so what my advice to people is number one, if you don't know if in your personal life you feel like you are either in a fight or, fight or flight zone pretty consistently, meaning you are very combative and argumentative and, and with people that you're talking to, loved ones, friends, et cetera. Or if something touchy, sensitive shows up, you shut down, shut the conversation down, you don't engage. You need some coaching. You need some training on how to have healthy conversations before you even try to step into this kind of conversation that I gave an example of in the workplace, right? Because there's actually things on the line. As a manager, if you say the wrong thing, and as a manager, if you do the wrong thing, you create liability, you create li- risk for the company that you're representing. That you're representing. So what I encourage people to do is that, you know, if you know that you're not an effective communicator, you come in way too hot or you shut down way too fast, then you need to get support from an HR representative. Usually HR folks have got people that they can leverage if you don't have HR Talk to other managers that you feel do a really good job having and broaching difficult conversations. And then get yourself trained up because it is a muscle. You can, you can train yourself to become really skilled at having difficult conversations with any kind of person, the, the hothead to the person who shuts down and wilts like a flower and cries. They both require a different kind of communication style. And you've got to figure out how to facilitate that, right? Right. But don't come in like, oh, Cyril said, you know, and, and then do that. No, it, it, it's more nuanced than that. You got to read the room. You have to read the energy, you know, understand the audience and then make sure you're sticking the landing in a way that doesn't get you into hot water.
0: Yeah. It comes down to emotional intelligence, understanding how to under- connect with people. Right. And, and we're terrible Some, teramo- people, some <laughs> people, yeah, some people think they're good at it. And other people. Oh. people but 75% of people say they're above average.
1: Oh my gosh. Right. (laughs) I love that statistic. You know, my thing is I'm like the most dangerous people on the planet earth are folks who think they're smart and are not. (laughs) It's dangerous.
0: And with, uh, with things changing so rapidly, you know, leaders have their, you know, call it their real job to, to do as I hear often from people is like, I don't have time. Like, you know, we we did uh, you know, DEI training. We did this, and it often seems to be like, hey, you go for a hour lunch and learn or something, or a, you know, ninety minute session, and then it's like, okay, whew, they're back to my desk and work. Right. How how do you help leaders and you know even contrib- uh, individual contributors? How do you help them transition information from that session or seminar into. Day-to-day life, day-to-day right work.
1: Practical application. I tell people training without accountability is just entertainment, right? Being held accountable to what you just learned, the use of what you just learned. That is always a missing component with all of these trainings that happen. So what I encourage people to do, so when we, we I, I present personally uh, um, between 150 and 350 trainings a year. All over the, the country, um, and I'll be in Canada in June. I will be in Toronto um, at a conference uh, uh, there.
0: Where do you live, Tim? In Calgary.
1: Oh, okay, it's a little ways We're, away. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm like we should we should have lunch. Um, <laughs> but but training is not enough. You need training in order to fill the tool belts because you can't start holding people accountable if they don't understand what the best practices are, what the expectations are, what the standards are, right? They have to have the tools for you to hold them accountable. But once you give them the tools, you actually need to ensure that they're utilizing those tools. And the way that you ensure that they're utilizing the tools are a few different ways. Number one, managers should think about the training that they are providing, that their workforce is going through, and think about how do we want to see it applied in the workplace? That's a step that most managers don't do. They're just like, oh, that sounds interesting. Let's bring that in, which is cool if it's for entertainment purposes right a cerebral entertainment exercise but if you actually want for something to change you have to think about now how we how can we integrate some of these things into our day-to-day operations so i'll give you an example we're working with a government organization um next week they have a um a human resources team and specifically a really large recruitment team the recruitment team is going through uh um um equity integration training, right? Like how do you take some of these concepts and then and, and make it relevant into the work that they do day to day? But then we have work sessions where we actually bring in their systems and we have a conversation about, okay, so this is the way, this is this practice. This is how it's executed and implemented. This is how you can make a shift to it to make it more inclusive in the ways that we learned about. So we have three sessions set up after the training to talk about application of the previous session. And we have, four sessions total. So it's a series of four. We have three work sessions that are hour 90 minutes long after each training that are just about integrating the last training into their day-to-day practices and operations that came to be because management said, we love the content. We love the curricula that you are presenting to us. We actually want to take it a step further and, and go into integration. Do you have something like that? And we're like, yes, we do. We're all about integration. And we were quickly able to uh, put together structure of, of training and development based on the curricula. So that's, that's just one example. You can also embed this into employee, your performance, your performance evaluation system, right? You can tie the, 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 um, the application of these concepts into your merit uh, pay. You can do all kinds of interesting ways to ensure people are utilizing the information you're investing in providing to them.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, we. I see this on the the workplace well-being side as well. That's as what we do our consulting on. And there's such a crossover with communication, uh, leadership, uh, the the respect of people in in the workplace. What what leaders are saying about wellness versus what they're actually doing about wellness, and right. the the integration is huge. Like. Yeah, you have a gym on site. Yeah, you have a benefits plan. Yeah, yeah, you're doing all these different things. Is it actually being implemented? Right. Are are leaders being held accountable to results in those areas? Generally not. In most Generally
1: companies. not. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. right. So so what are so what are we doing here, right? Yeah. Um I think about it like um health health and wellness like in your body. You can you can watch all of the YouTube videos and Instagram shorts on how to make hummus tasty and balanced with meals of grains and colorful vegetables. And you can do all that while snacking on Doritos, eating Pop-Tarts and having fried chicken for dinner, right? It's it, it It's got to go beyond just thinking about it to actual work if you want to have a healthy environment and healthy ecosystem now if you just want to think about healthy thoughts and then just live in a you know a cesspool your decision but please don't don't claim that you're you know uh, a health guru while I'm watching you eat you know uh, uh, sugary you know treats and you know pointless food that that's poisoning you every single day while you're claiming to be something that you're not why do that? And that's what people are doing in these work environments is that they have the right buzzwords, they have the right talking points, and they're saying the right things all while continuing to, to engage in very harmful behavior that stresses out their workforce, that causes people to be the worst versions of themselves, that, that, that um, uh, uh, just kind of fosters this environment of toxicity while claiming they're, they're, they're above it.
0: Absolutely. And when we go to corporate culture, that is at the heart of the issue with so many corporate cultures is marketing and leadership talk about all these great things. And the day to day reality of employees coming into the the office is polar opposite or very different, different enough to cause stress.
1: Absolutely. I mean, let's just let's just make it very, very visible. Right. Because sometimes culture can be, you know, uh, it's like air. It's all around us, but I don't quite see it. Right. Um, diversifying the workforce. Right. So I'm, I'm an HR practitioner. I embed diversity, equity, and inclusion fundamentals into traditional HR functions, recruitment, employee relations, labor relations, classification and compensation, benefits, training and development that, that we embedded into all those fundamentals. Now, Nearly during, during all the civil unrest and George Floyd, nearly every company made a commitment to diversify their organizations, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, they had all the talking points. They put, color, they put together colorful marketing ads. They said all the right things, right? If you fast forward two years later and you look at their board of directors and you look at their executive team and you look just one level below, their VPs and directors, the composition is still, by and large, deeply homogenous very white, very male dominated, still very, um, homogenous from a gender identity, gender expression standpoint as well. Make it make sense, right? The, the, you, you, there, we need to reconcile the two, like the outcome doesn't, isn't aligned with the commitment two years later. And so everybody is noticing this, right? It's just, it's, it's, it's very superficial. This is where the, the term, um, performative came from right you know um rainbow washing and you know all of those kinds of things come from people saying like show the receipt like don't tell me you're going to do it actually do the work and not enough people are really doing the work
0: yeah because that no, change takes some effort
1: it takes and effort it, but it, is, it didn't take that much time no like you got a vacancy today find the, the people who are historically underrepresented and then ensure that they are aware the position is there and then make sure you interview them for the position and then make sure it's a competitive process where they get an opportunity, a fair shake at the opportunity. It's baloney for you to tell me it takes so much time when I know you hired a VP yesterday. Yeah. Sorry, Tim.
0: No, no I, I love it. It's, it helps. It requires people to get uncomfortable and to step outside what their norm is. And that's not happening.
1: Nope.
0: So what, what do you see as the future of human resources then? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> things, things have shifted a lot over the last couple of years.
1: The future of human resources. You know, I, I have a lot of sayings because I do, I speak a lot. Right. Um, and I'm like human resources by another name is still human resources right now it's people and culture. Now it's people, culture and equity. I mean, it's the, now it's, um, People are making it all kinds of stuff. And it's like, well, at the end of the day, human resources has been embedded into the framework and the infrastructure of capitalism and business in North America and beyond. Right. Not going anywhere. The compliance is tethered to it. Right. The federal and the state laws are are tethered to it. Um, the money, salaries, compensation—all those things, all those infrastructural things—are are tethered to the existence of human resources and having someone who is responsible to be um, responsive to uh, compliance types of requirements. So it's not going anywhere, but it can evolve, right? And so what I I, I teach at different universities um, in the human resources function. Not saying human resources is terrible. I think human resources is amazing. It's it's got all this data, it's data rich, it's it's opportunity rich, it's accountability rich, right? You can hold people accountable through performance management systems owned by human resources. You can ensure you've got diverse talent through um, recruitment, uh, initiatives owned by human resources. You can make sure that pe- that women aren't being, white women are being paid 70 cents on a white man's dollar and black women are being paid 62 cents on a white male's dollar and Latina women aren't being paid 51 cents on a white male's dollar for doing the exact same work. You know why? Because the money, the compensation, the salaries are embedded in human resources. Look at how amazing the opportunities are inside human resources. If we actually manage the systems that exist in, the, uh, in human resources differently. And that's my call to action. I am, I am classically trained in human resources. I have served in the most senior human resources capacities uh, in full-time jobs, and I currently serve as four intima, interim executive vice presidents and senior vice presidents for four different corporations right now on an interim basis until I can find a really great candidate to, to to step in to lead these HR teams. I live it and I breathe it. And here's what I do know. It can be administered for good or for harm. So I just want to give you one quick example. Mm. So I go into this um, really big organization. I come in as the <clears throat> executive vice president and I bring two of my members of the workplace change team with me um, as directors. We're fully embedded. We get a, we get a card, right? Um, um, an ID card for the company to be able to get in and out. We get email. We get access to all of their infrastructure because we're in there. Full integration. We roll up our sleeves. We don't just preach these things. We actually come in on the ground and help you do HR differently. So I'm in this organization and we run a report. We run a report because um, it. Particularly in this organization, the black employees were crying foul. They said, "Black people, you know, this is about twenty thousand people inside the organization. The black folks are saying folks are not being treated properly. They are, um, you know, going to the union. They have grievances up the wazoo. They are, you know, sending messages to the to the to the to the CEO. They are going to the press. I mean, it's a it's a big old hairy mess in there." And I and they said, you know, these black, we want to bring you in. Hey, I'm black, I know. Tim, you may not know this. Uh, you might not be able to see that. <laughs> And that's a joke because I'm a dark-skinned black girl with some braids in my hair right now. I'm black. <laughs> and uh they bring us in and they're like, hey, we gotta, we we gotta, we know we need some systems changes, but we also need to 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 figure out how to cool the charge nature of our black employees in particular. I said, okay, cool. Step number one, let's research what their complaints are. Is there any there there? are they making this up? Because sometimes in HR, I know people make things up. Okay. We look at the data and we see that black folks who make up about 4% of the, the, the population there, they make up, they made up like nearly 30% of terminations for calls. Right. So you, we have th- tens of thousands of employees. You actually fire a lot of people. Like there's a, there's, yeah. thing, there's a lot of energy that's happening in there. So we can track that data in HR. We saw that although they make up 4% of the population, they're making up 30% of determinations for calls. Interesting. We also saw that um, uh, recruitments were low. We saw that disciplinary action was alarmingly high. I mean, they made made up a significant amount of the the discipline for for calls, right? And I said, huh, that's interesting. How is this even possible, right? How can 400 or 4,000, you know, it's not even 4,000, probably like like 1,900 people make up hundreds of terminations every single year It's just disproportionately represented in in that particular population. So I suspended all terminations. You cannot get a termination in this corporation. Remember, they brought me in as the interim executive vice president of human resources. I'm not a contractor or consultant. I'm up in here. So we're going to suspend all terminations. That freaked people out. Managers couldn't just terminate people at at their, they had to make the case to me. Within The first week of me suspending it and and folks having to come through me, we went from having week to week, probably 20, 30, 40 requests for termination to about a month into it, maybe two or three requests. Because now my HR team is understanding that they don't have to do whatever the HR manager is telling them to do. Number two, we saw that the number of requests that were coming forward were not legitimate. I would say 90% of them weren't. They just didn't like the person, or they just were fed up. They had never talked to the person. They were not patient with the person. And when we would look at the other employees, like, is this the first employee to do this? Has any other employee did this? Let's do a little bit of due, due diligence. We saw that 40-50% of that workforce were doing some of these things, but only the black employee was getting terminated for it. Ah, wrong answer. They're not gonna be terminated. You're gonna get a conversation, and all the other people we identified are gonna get the same conversation. And we're going to send out a global communication to your entire workforce, expect, level setting the expectations. We're going to reboot. It was more work. People were deeply frustrated with me, but the outcome shifted. That is us using human resources for good, to pay attention to what's happening systemically and saying, not on our watch is this going to be just allowed to happen disproportionately to one particular demographic of people while everybody else gets grace and everyone else is treated with humanity. No. Yeah. Right. So that's just me just, you, you know, sharing with you what's the future of human resources. I think the future of human resources is more aligned with the illustration I just provided with how we can disrupt and interrupt some of these negative trend lines that are causing harm to human beings.
0: And that requires identifying the areas of opportunity and being aware of the flaws in the system. Precisely. So how do we get to that point?
1: Well, we already know that. Look, if you work in the system, you know that the system is rigged and you know how it's rigged, right? Like you there's not one HR person, there's not one finance person, there's not one legal in-house legal representative who doesn't already know that there's a fly in the ointment, right? But more times than not, they are talking about kind of protect protect the 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 system, right? The system is built to sustain itself and these folks are just are just um actors in in maintaining the status quo not even recognizing because you know when you're in your little space you don't look up and see the 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 massive impact that you're having these ripples that are happening causing a tidal wave to, to certain to certain demographics of folks and so if people just you know just look up ask some questions and say how can we do this differently how can we do it better and then try something different which is hard it's scary Every there's so many people who are just so afraid to lose their livelihood if they don't stay in in rhythm with a system that is benefiting those who are at the top. That's the fear. But but if you move in fear, right, if you govern yourself from a place of fear, I can assure you that the outcome will not be great. It's not going to be nearly as great as it could be if you move from a position of conviction and a perspective of abundance. And I believe that.
0: But well, I love that you're so data focused as well because it's like the numbers don't lie.
1: <laughs> numbers don't lie. What is the statement? Men lie, women lie. Numbers don't lie. <laughs> now I can look at the numbers and lie to you about what they mean, but if you really look at the numbers, they tell the story.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and companies have this, this information at their fingertips and they're just not using it. Back. And I I love that. Um, well, we have like, I, I, there's so many more things we could talk about. I want to be conscious of time. We talked a little bit about where you feel the future of HR is going. One question I have uh, to tie it back to the well being aspect a little bit is there's a trend towards chief well being officers, uh, head of well being, things like that. Where do you see that fitting in the organizational structure?
1: Man, it looks so different, and so every ecosystem is is doing wellness, you know, very, 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 very uh, differently. I, I think that we need to establish a standard of what we mean by well being, just like we have a standard of what we mean by human resources, and we have a standard of what we mean by finance and marketing and communications and operations, right? If we think that well being is important. I actually believe that there needs to be a body of work associated with, you know, what does well-being mean in the workplace? What are we trying to get at so that we can consistently apply it, uh, you know, from place to place? I feel the same way about diversity, equity and inclusion. DEI looks light years apart when you go from one organization to the next organization. And that's because we haven't really established a standard of what diversity, equity and inclusion means, looks like, feels like in organizations and institutions. I think government has more of a a, a pretty set standard nationally about what diversity, equity, and inclusion means in, in play from, you know, federal and state standpoint. But I think you go to healthcare, it's different from place to place. Sometimes it's patient focused. Sometimes it's employee focused. Sometimes it's data focused, right? Research focused. It can look a million and one different ways. And I just think we need to get some, some foundational standards that, you know, uh, that people can, can look to for guidance because people are looking for guidance right now. Kind of like what we did with sustainability. We've got the B Corp, B Corp established some standards for what sustainability meant, because they knew from place to place to place, sustainability meant different things like sustainability looked like blow hand blow dryers in one place. And it looked like, you know, food, you know, rotting in one of those bins in another place. And they said, well, this is what the standard bearer looks like for sustainability. And if you want to claim to be affiliated with us, you have to hit these standards. And I really feel like there's a value to that when it comes to well-being and when it comes to diversity, equity and inclusion, quite frankly.
0: Yeah, when I see well-being and diversity, equity, inclusion being very interconnected. Obviously, if you have poor (laughs) diversity, poor equity, inclusion, you're going to have poor well-being. And uh, yeah, until we get a a big standard, at the bare minimum, having identifying what it means for your individual organization (laughs) is a good start, because I don't think a lot of companies have even gotten that far yet.
1: I agree with you 100%. They, or at least people,
0: people within the organization aren't uh, agreeing on what it is. HR believes this, leadership believes this, uh, you know, managers believe that.
1: That's exactly right. Which means we're stuck, right? We're we're literally the way. Then we're doing well being is just by talking about it in perpetuity with no actual outcomes uh, and real resource investments or accountability tethered to it, which is which is a waste.
0: So Sarilda, in wrapping up, what, what's, your, what's your one takeaway to listeners? What's the one thing you want people to remember about you and this, your organization, this, uh, this conversation?
1: Oh, man. So one thing about me is um, I'm actually pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like people, people see folks who are in human resources and do the kind of work I do, investigations, a lot of accountability, and they think, like they, they, we lose our humanity as well. It's like HR said, and it's like, no, there's a, there's a real human being back there and you can have a conversation with that human being and, and make your point, right? Like there, you can, you can make the point, you can make your point, make your case and have a conversation with them. You don't always have to see them as the man trying to oppress you and stop you from ultimate glory. Um, one thing about, you know, workplace change is I think workplace change is the future of, of people and culture, people ops. Uh, I think that my goal is for every human resources function and department and small, medium, large, extra large environments, government, not for profit, for profit to run human resources the way in which we are trying to lead it uh, in in workplace change. And we're small, but we're incredibly mighty. And our objective is not to. It's not just to disrupt, but it's to, to disrupt the status quo and to rebuild something that still gets you big paydays as corporations, that still gets you creativity and innovation, that still allows you to have your flexibility as management and leadership and leading the company towards the promised land of however it is you imagine it in your mind, but that treats people with humanity with you know, and, and, and respect along the way. And that is the future of human resources, people ops, people culture, et cetera. Uh, and I believe it can exist inside HR. It does not have to be set aside from. It has to happen right in the in the infrastructure of capitalism. There is where it must live, and human resources lives there.
0: Fantastic, love it! Thank you so much. Uh, where can people find you?
1: Um, we should connect on LinkedIn. I'm heavy on LinkedIn. So Cirilda Summers McGee or Workplace Change on LinkedIn is a great connection point. Um, that's, how, that's how Tim and I found each other. And um, and then I'm on all social media, but workplacechanges.com uh, is where we put a lot of content, a lot of videos, a lot of publications to help you kind of see the way we see the world.
0: Perfect. And I can attest the workplacechanges.com site is awesome.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Thank all you, right.
0: Thank you so much, Thrilled. Look forward to reconnecting again soon. And when you're in Calgary, by all means, stop by.
1: Is it cold in Calgary right now, Tim?
0: It is uh, warming up now. It's uh, spring has sprung.
1: Okay. The the snow is almost melted. Oh, the snow! No, it's cold. No, no, you still have snow. It's cold. It's mostly melted now. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the invite.
0: You're very welcome. We'll chat soon. Right on. That wraps up another episode of the Working Well podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Now, which guests would you like to see featured on the show? Just message me through LinkedIn or on the contact page of timboris.com. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Tim Boris with Fresh Wellness Group, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.